Amen. Wow, great singing. Praise the Lord. Well, if you take your Bibles, please turn with me to James chapter 2. James is such a direct writer of Scripture, isn't he? He gets right to the point. Makes it very clear what he's saying, what he's asking, what he's commanding. Remember James, the half-brother of Jesus, writing with great illustrations, some 30 various illustrations. Someday I'd like to just write them all out and give you a copy of them so you can see all the usages of natural things that he brings a spiritual application to. Remember that James also gives 54 commands in 108 verses. So he's very highly commanding, and we find that in this text as well. We've been talking about external trials and circumstances that overwhelm us. We count it joy. The internal temptations that rise up in our heart, being attracted to the bait of the, of the, the sinful flesh and the world and the devil, um, we abandon, we renounce. We, we, we just don't go there. We, we keep the two separate. We submit to the Holy Spirit and do not let the lust of the flesh take over. When it comes to hearing the word of God, we want to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath, because the wrath of man does not produce God's righteousness. We need to also receive the word of God as an implanted seed that is able to save our souls, and we need to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Now, to be a doer of the word, James is going to give us three areas to do. One is keep a controlled tongue. That's coming up a couple weeks from now. Be controlled with your speech. Guard what you say. Not only do we need to have a controlled tongue, but we also need to have a caring ministry. Pure and undefiled religion is visiting, caring for, and meeting the needs of widows and orphans. Now it's being elaborated to even showing favoritism to others, which is a great sin. The final area James will deal with is personal holiness. We must be personally holy, living and walking according to the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit day by day. Well, this evening we're going to continue on the message from the morning regarding don't play favorites. Just do not play favorites. It is a a tendency of ours in this world with our own sinful natures to give honor and preferential treatment to those that we like, those that we think have something to, to give us or something to make us feel better about, and for those who we do not uh, want to associate with, we simply disdain or dishonor. James says, this is sin. This is great sin. Don't do it. Stop playing favorites in the church. That was the command. My brethren, James chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, regarding acts of partiality, showing favoritism, being maybe more kind to certain people, more forgiving to certain people, more sacrificial to certain people, giving them all of your energy and all of your social fellowshipping things, and then for these people over here, giving them nothing, giving treatment to one and not to another, uh, just based on an outward appearance, James said, says regarding these acts of partiality, you cannot hold on to the faith of Jesus Christ and the acts of partiality at the same time. It is inconsistent. It is not Christ-like. He goes on and he gives the illustration, and you know the illustration from the morning, into our assembly walks two men. One man is a man with many gold rings, 
fingers full of gold rings. We call him Mr. Goldfinger. And as Mr. Goldfinger comes in, he's got fine apparel. The word fine, remember, is glittering, sparkling. The outfit that he's wearing is one that probably had never been worn before. Who knows? It's a, it's a rich garment, beautiful colors, not a stain on it. He probably smells with the most fragrant men's aftershave you could have in the day. And in he walks, along with him comes another man. This man is a beggar. He is poor. He has nothing. Probably no home. He probably has no money, no food, nothing. And his clothes that he comes in are called filthy rags. They stink. He lives in those clothes. He sleeps in those clothes. He sweats in those clothes. And they are grimy and torn. You can almost picture it. And you can smell him a block away. And in they walk to the assembly of believers both probably curious about the gospel and and the life of the Lord Jesus. And the usher says to the man with fine apparel, I will pay attention to you. I will meet your needs. I will invest time and energy and everything I can that you might have a nice place in our worship service. Come, sit here in a beautiful seat so you can have a nice view and everybody can see you. But as for you, you poor man in filthy rags who stinks a mile away, please stand up back there, away from everybody, or... If you so choose to sit, come and sit by my footstool so you can smell my stinky feet while we have our service. You can see what's going on. The man, the sin is not the rich man being rich. That's not the sin. The sin is not the poor man not dressing up and being right for the services. That's not it at all. The sin is preferential treatment by somebody in the church, giving favor because of the the external appearance, the outside, the out things. And what do we do? We do the same thing. We play that game all the time. People have to have a certain look, certain style, certain wealth, certain education, certain position, certain something. And if they don't, if they are different than us, we tend to dishonor, disdain them. James says, verse 2, For there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, You stand there, or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You are so divided because on the one hand, you say, I have faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus died for the whole world while the whole world was yet in sin. Everyone rebellious and wicked and alienated from God, Jesus played no favorites when he came to the cross. He didn't say, I'm only going to die for certain people if you have a certain education and if you're a certain race and if you're a certain whatever. If I will only pay for your salvation and not the rest of the world, that's not Jesus. Jesus came and he died for the whole world, from the very poorest man to the very richest man. And if we start playing favorites, we, are, we can't hold on to faith in Jesus and playing favorites and showing partiality. It is just absolutely inconsistent. can't do it. You're a divided person. James has a lot to say about divided people. Then we saw some reasons. Verse 5. The first reason is theological. It's the very character of God. Verse 5, listen, my beloved brethren. And so here now he's just saying, hearken, listen, take time, just take a break, listen carefully, my loved ones. That's what he's saying. He's being harsh, but in such a gentle way. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Okay, there's a theological reason why we should not be partial to anybody that comes in. Or, for that matter, when we're out in the community, to show favoritism to certain people and not, to, uh, and, and not, um, not show love to others. 
there's a theological reason. This is not what our God is like. God has chosen as his children and as his believers, and we're not going to get into the whole issue of the elect and Calvinism. As you know, I'm not Calvinistic. Um, I'm not Arminian either, so there. Um, That's not the point. The point is this. The ones who respond to the gospel have been the poor, the oppressed, the ones that are insignificant. God has chosen those who are poor, mostly in this world, so that they might be rich in faith. Although they may not have the material things of this world, they have faith in Jesus Christ, knowing that he died for the sins of the world, and by receiving him by faith, they have eternal life. They become rich in faith. There is nobody who trusts Jesus Christ that is not now a joint heir of everything that Jesus Christ is. Do you understand? When we are one with Christ, whatever he owns, we are joint heirs with him. We're ruling and we're going to be ruling and reigning with our Savior forever. So even though now on this earth there are some people that are absolutely poor and insignificant in the world's eyes, and then the people that the world elevate are the movie stars and the pop stars, the singing stars, and the athletes, that's what the world elevates. Very few of those people come to Christ. Some do, of course, praise the Lord, but not all. Take a look at, at 1 Corinthians 6. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 1, 26. I mentioned the passage this morning, but we should just look at it briefly. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. There, is, there are so many divisions in the Corinthian church. You know why the Corinthian church was so divisive? They had such an issue with partiality. There was a group in the church that thought they were so, so much better than the other group. There were the rich that would come to the Lord's Supper, and before people could take the Lord's Supper, they would just gorge themselves with the finest of foods. And then the people that had to work all day, they would come to the Lord's Supper, and they'd be like, hey, there's no food left at the, at the love feast. And the rich would say, sorry, we ate it, we drank it all ourselves. Just, there is so much favoritism and partiality in the, in the Corinthian church. And so Paul is explaining, look who God has called to be part of the church. Verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many, not many wise. I mean, there are some wise people that get saved, but not many wise, according to the flesh. Not many mighty, not many noble are called. Why? Because often the wise and the mighty and the noble, they don't need the Lord. They're so independent. They have everything. They, they, They see no need. They don't see that they're spiritually bankrupt. They see them physically wealthy, but spiritually, they don't have any clue how bankrupt and destitute they really are. So not many of those are called. Some are, but not many. Verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world. In other words, the things that the world considers as weak and foolish, God says, that's what I value. To put to shame the things that are mighty. Verse 28, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen. The things that the world does not cherish, like humility, brokenness, recognition of sin, the things that the world does not consider of high value, God says, I value those highly. If this is how God operates, showing no partiality but offering salvation to all, that all who would believe would come to him, if the majority and the the most that come are the poor and the oppressed, then why would you favor the rich man and showing dishonor to the poor man in the assembly? 
James says it doesn't make sense theologically. That's not how our God is. Our God is impartial. He loves everyone. He loves everyone. He died for everyone. So back to James chapter 2. We see that God chose the poor for two things. First of all, that they would be rich in faith. And then secondly, we see in verse 5 that they would be heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. See, not only are the poor and the insignificant and the weak and the foolish in this world rich in faith, they are the future heirs of the kingdom. This is the kingdom that Jesus is speaking about. When he comes to earth in body form at the second coming, he sets up his kingdom. He will sit in Jerusalem and rule over this regenerated planet. He will make this planet earth in a regenerated form like the Garden of Eden. And all of those who are his children, the ones that the world despises and thinks little of, they will be the ones ruling in the future. They will be entering into the inheritance of the kingdom. Now, if the king has everything and you are now an heir of the king, can you imagine the great wealth that we will have in in heaven? And I'm not thinking we're just going to be racking up bank accounts and I'll say, hey, here's how much I have in heaven's bank and how much do you have. It's not like that at all. It's just we will have all things in Christ. There is not anything we will will need that we do not have. It is going to be phenomenal. So why would we start looking at what the world values and placing honor and glory in that and disdaining that, those things that God chooses doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense theologically that we would be playing those games. So now think about your own relationships on a human level. There are people that you run across every week that for some reason they, you just don't like. They, they rub you the wrong way. They're not like you. They maybe don't have the same interests. They maybe smell, maybe... Uh, Whatever, maybe they, they don't talk with eloquent English. Maybe, who knows what they, what, but we tend to be preferential. Do you see now the sin and the issue? Because God says those are the things I choose, people that are broken and humble and, and foolish and that in the world's eyes. They are the ones that are rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. How dare you treat the rich in faith and the heirs in the kingdom in such a way? How dare you treat them with dishonor and disdain when you elevate the things that are rebellious against God? That's the theological reason. Secondly, let's look at the logical reason. There's a logical reason why we shouldn't be uh, giving preferential treatment to certain people and, and uh, not loving everyone as ourself. Verse 6, But you have dishonored, you have despised, you have disdained the poor man. Here's the logical reason. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? Why would the early church be showing favoritism to the rich. And in this case, James is giving us one illustration, rich and poor. We can apply this to anything, that any group of people that we give special treatment for over another on an outward, external situation. Why would James uh, say that, just why do you cater to the rich? When the rich are the ones who persecute you and they drag you. Literally, it means to drag, to drag you out of your house, drag you down the street, bring you before the civil magistrates, bring you before the religious authorities, and have you punished and persecuted for your faith. And then when it comes to showing preferential treatment, those are the ones that you're, that you're honoring and giving glory to. It does, there's no logic in that. Why would you honor and show preferential treatment to the very people that persecute the Christians? James says it doesn't make sense. They drag you off into court, and yet you turn around and you give honor to them. And you elevate them over others that God would choose. And secondly, they blaspheme the very name by which we were called. Last week, one of the most incredible things was Jeremy's baptism. 
as he stood in the water, and he went under the water, and he completely identified publicly, publicly with Jesus Christ. He now, he now placed Jesus' name on his life. And when you look at Jeremy, you are looking at a man who's given allegiance to Jesus Christ. He is now, been, he is now called a Christ follower, a Christian, a Christian. He is, he is a Christ follower now publicly. So why would we give honor to those people that would blaspheme the name by which we've been called? And I think James is talking and thinking about our baptism. When you are called as a Christ follower, why do you give preferential treatment to those who blaspheme and hate and despise the name of the Lord Jesus? See, we, we do this when we give favoritism to certain groups and not to others. And often the ones that we extol and that we, we give great glory to are the things that the world loves and the things that the world exalts. James says it doesn't make any sense. Now in verse 8. Now 8 through 13 is the final reason. It's our longest reason. It is the biblical reason. We have a theological reason. God himself doesn't play favorites. He chooses the poor, so why would we give preferential treatment to the rich? Secondly, there's a logical reason. The rich are the ones that are pressing and persecuting the poor and blaspheming the name of Jesus. Why would we prefer them over others? But thirdly, listen, this is the, I think they're all important, but this one is the biblical reason. Verse 8, look with me. If, and this is a first-class condition in the Greek, which means the if could really be a since meaning it, it, is, it is happening in your assembly. This is so important, everybody. Verse 8, Since you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. Since you're doing it. There are some in your assembly who really are living out the royal law. Now let's talk about the royal law. There's two ways that you could look at it. This is it's the king's law. Who's our king? Our king is Jesus. Jesus made the law. He's the king. We need to obey it. So it's the king's law. If he sets the standard, we have to submit. The royal law, we're going to talk about in just one minute. Another way of looking at royal law is supreme or sovereign, the primary law. If you follow the royal law, there will be no preferential treatment of others. There'll be no favoritism. There'll be no partiality. There'll be no racial things going on. There'll be no social things going on. There'll be no economic things going on. If we truly fulfill the royal law, we would do away with any type of racism or partiality or prejudice or favoritism once and for all, if we did this. The royal law. What is the royal law according to scripture? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All right, take your Bibles. Go with me to Matthew 22. Listen, we will look at a few of these passages. They are so important. This is our supreme law. It is our kingly law. Matthew 22. Looking with me at verse 34. Matthew 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, uh, this lawyer, he, he was a, a writer, a copier of scripture. He was, he was well-schooled in every jot and tittle of the Old Testament. This man knew the scriptures. He's testing the Lord, and he says, because we think of lawyer like, uh, I don't know, one of the lawyer shows on TV or something. We think of lawyers as courtroom type things, you know, battling cases and all. This is a lawyer who is schooled in the, in the word of God. He says, testing the Lord, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Now, how many commandments are there in the law? Well, there's 10 in the 10 commandments in the Decalogue, but there's 613 in the Jewish, 
in the Jewish religion, 613 laws, out of the 613, or even out of the 10. Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? We want to test you. Well, here's what Jesus said. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. All right, so that is also part of the royal law. You have to love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, all of it. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all, all the law and the prophets. If you want to completely fulfill God's plan, God's will, love him supremely, love others fully. You must. Love God supremely, all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, all of your mind. And secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. That is required. That is fulfilling the royal law. If, James says, in James 2, if you fulfill the royal law, you do well. The word well, you do excellently. It's the idea of well done, my good and faithful servant. If you truly fulfill the, the, the royal law, love God with all your heart and soul and strength, and love others as yourself, you then will fulfill all the commandments. You won't be committing murder. You won't be committing adultery. You won't be bearing false witness. You won't be coveting. You won't be um, dishonoring your mother and father. You won't be having graven idols. You won't be um, having other gods before God if you truly do those things. Now, these are found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, and Leviticus 19. We're turning to Leviticus 19. Quickly turn with me to Leviticus 19 because this is our aspect of the royal law, loving your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19, by the way, as you're turning there, don't think that by loving yourself, it's some type of emotional attachment of, I'm the greatest person, I'm so lovely, I am so great. It's not the idea of self-image, self-esteem. That is not it at all. When Jesus says you must love your neighbor as yourself, he's not speaking of some type of self-love or self-idolatry or self-elevation. Not at all. It's more like this. Today, whose mouth did you put food in? Unless you're a mother with a small baby. (laughs) Whose mouth did you put food in? Your own. Whose face did you wash? Your own. Again, unless you're a mother with little children, then you're loving your neighbor as yourself, really. Um, Whose hair did you comb? Yeah. Whose body did you dress? Yours. Yours, yours. You have taken care of yourself. Whose life are are you just trying to make comfortable right now by sitting in a nice pew? Yours. You know, so we're the ones taking care of our life, or we're taking care of all of those needs, but we need to be thinking about others in the same way. And then in the, in the same intensity, in the same fashion that I take care of my own face, and I wash my, I wash my own face, and I um, brush my own teeth, and I feed my own mouth. So to love my neighbor like myself, I will be doing all I can to meet their needs. That is the goal, to love them so that I will go out of my way with the same intensity that I take to feed my body and keep my body clean and clothed and comfortable. I need to to seek to do the same thing to others. If you do it to orphans and widows, they need somebody to wash their face and care for them and give them clothing and, and be involved in their lives. But there's other people in our church. If we want to love them like we love ourselves, we will be looking out for their needs quickly and fast with the same intensity. Do you know how many needs are going on in the church on a daily basis? There are just really physical needs as well as spiritual needs. Truly, loving your neighbor as yourself, fulfilling the royal law, you are seeking to meet the needs. It's not self-love and emotional attachment to yourself. It is, I'm taking care of myself on a daily basis. I'm meeting my needs on a daily basis. Now I need to be loving others like that.
right? So I'm not loving myself more. I'm loving others with the intensity and the passion and the care about the needs that I do in my own life with my own body. This is what Leviticus 19 is speaking of and addressing. Go down to verse 15. Leviticus 19, 15. God says, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor. Do not be partial to the poor. Nor honor the person of the mighty. Do not do that. Do not disdain or despise the poor and exalt the mighty. In righteousness, you shall judge one another. In the same context as that, look at verse 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's where it comes in. As soon as God spoke that and Moses wrote it down, everybody knew with the same passion and intensity that I'm meeting my needs to care for my existence on earth, I need to meet the needs of others. And if I did that, if I treated others as I, as I care for myself, I would not be committing adultery or bearing false witness or coveting or murdering or any of those things. I would not be dishonoring my God and having other gods and images before me. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be doing that. That's why it's the royal law. And Jesus said on these two, loving God and loving others, all the commandments are fulfilled if you can do that. Now, take your Bibles. I'm sorry, we are going to a few different places. We're almost done, though, with these with this various excursions in Scripture. Luke, 8, Luke 10, please. Luke 10. Here we see an example of, of partiality and a man who truly loves the neighbor as himself. The good question is, if I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, who is my neighbor? I mean, I have some great neighbors on Helm Road, on both sides of the street. And um, so are those my only neighbors in this whole world? <laughs> that, that limits my, my need to love others very, very small, doesn't it? Well, Luke 10, look at the situation here. In verse 25, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him. Luke 10, 25, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus said to him, I love this, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered, now, This is a lawyer. Jesus now said, What is your understanding of the whole Old Testament? If you can boil it down, what does God want you to do? Look at what the lawyer says. Verse 27, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 22. You want to fulfill the royal law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind and love your neighbor as yourself? Jesus says that's exactly right. Verse 28, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You see, the lawyer wants to give preferential treatment. I'll call this person my neighbor because I really get along with them and I don't mind taking care of their needs. But so-and-so over here, I don't want to meet their needs. I don't want to even have a relationship or talk to them. I would rather have nothing to do with them. I want to do things with my own group. Jesus says, you can't play favorites. You can't do that. So Jesus says, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among, remember that word, fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. So here's a naked, wounded, bleeding, half-dead man laying on the road. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Oh, preferential treatment. Here's a man in great, great need. And the certain priest looks. He sees the man has a need. He will not do anything about it. He goes on the other side of the road, just so he doesn't have to smell the blood. 
or look upon the nakedness of a beaten man. Verse 31. Now by chance a certain priest came down that... I'm sorry, verse 32. Likewise, a Levite. A priest and a Levite. These are men who should be examples of godliness to the whole community. A Levite. When he arrived at the place, came and looked. Came and looked. You can almost see the Levite going over there saying, hmm, it's a man. He looks half dead. He's bleeding. He's been stripped and beaten. Hmm, looks like a bad situation to me. This man is in dire straits. He is very, very much in pain. He could lose his life any moment. I'm sorry. I'm not going to intervene. I'm not going to meet his needs. I'm not going to love my neighbor as myself. Because if that man was down there, he would be taking care of himself. He'd, you know, he'd want to be taking care of himself. And then finally, verse 33, but a certain Samaritan. Now this would strike the lawyer very odd. Because the Samaritans and the Jewish people were enemies. The Levites and the priests were, were Jewish people. The Samaritans were half-Jewish. So they, they were really not compatible in their cultures. So here's an enemy. A certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had what? He had compassion. He loved his neighbor as, as himself. He had compassion. His heart was rent and broken open with compassion for this man. He went, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, two days' wages, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, Listen to this, He who showed mercy. The one who shows mercy. If you want to love your neighbor as yourself, you have to have compassion you have to intervene in, in needs. You have to be there. With compassion, you have to meet the needs and sh- you have to show mercy. If you show partiality, you are not showing mercy. So let's go back and wrap this up in, in James. It gets a little lengthy here at the end. We'll try to squeeze it in, though. James chapter 2. Now I think this will all fit in. James 2.8. Are you ready for this final... Plunge into the word of God. James 2.8. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do excellently. It is a good thing. It is excellent. It is noble. It is right. However, verse 9, if you show partiality, you commit sin. And you are convicted by the law as a transgressor. You miss the mark of God's glory and holiness and you step over the line, you become now a transgressor of the law. You are guilty. But the people in James Day, listen, everybody, the people in James Day, they would have said, but James, it's not like adultery or murder. Those are bad, wicked things that deserve death, according to the Mosaic law. This is simply showing favoritism. It's being partial to certain people over others. What's the big deal? Verse 10, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. He is guilty of all the law. You sin in the little area of partiality, you have sinned against all of God's character and nature. You are now guilty of breaking all of the law. It's like taking a big pane of glass and taking one hammer swing to it. All I did was hit the window in one place with the hammer, and yet the whole pane shattered. You're guilty in one part of not loving God and not loving your neighbor. You are guilty of it all. True? Absolutely guilty of it all. Do not think that a little sin is not a big issue. Every sin is an issue. Every sin is an affront, it's a rebellion, and it's a vicious attack on God's character. 
And James is saying, the sinfulness of sin is so vile and so vicious, don't play games with it. If you break the law in one aspect, you, you are a breaker of the whole law, guilty of all. Notice, guilty of all the law. So although you only did, showed a little bit of partiality, you've, you've really uh, wronged your neighbor, hurt your neighbor, you've committed great offense to him, you've cre- created great offense against God, and on and on it goes, you're guilty of all the law. Now, it says in verse 11, For he, God, who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. James is giving us an illustration. He now gets away from the partiality thing and playing favorites, and he says, I'm going to pick two commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, you're you're free on that charge. You didn't do that. But if you commit murder, you're guilty of all the law. Murder and adultery are two of the greatest crimes against humanity, really, against human relationships and human people. Murder and adultery are two of the greatest sins you can imagine. James is saying partiality is right up there with the big ones. It is right up there because at the root of of favoritism and partiality, love and hatred. You are actually hating and showing no care for certain people. It is just like adultery and just like murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. You break one law, you've broken them all. You can't get around it. Then he says, and let's wrap up in verse 12 and 13. What's our response to playing favorites, to having partiality with certain groups of people or certain individuals? James says, so speak and so do. Speak and do live a certain way as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. The law of liberty is the word of God. It liberates us. It frees us from the bondage of sin. Now that I am a follower of Jesus, a believer in Jesus, the word of God has freed me from my sinful passions. I can do right. I can love God and I can love my neighbor as myself. I really can. And because this law of liberty has set me free, I need to speak and to do according to this book. You need to see a change in my life regarding partiality. You need to see a change in my life regarding trials and counting it joy and the lust and temptation not meeting up with the enticement and the bait. You need to see those things. We need to speak and do as if we are being judged by this because we will be judged by the law of liberty. Here's the scene I think James is setting before us. We're at the, we're at the Bema seat, the reward seat of Jesus. Can you picture this with me as we close tonight? We're dead, bodily. We've been raised up in glorified form, and now we're all standing together before Jesus, and he's rewarding us for our life on earth. And he looks at somebody's life, and he says, listen, you did a lot of good things in the church and in ministry and evangelism and all of these things, but you showed no mercy. You showed no compassion for others' needs. You did not love others like you loved yourself. You didn't meet the needs of others like you met the the needs of yourself on a daily basis. So therefore, when I reward you for all of your deeds on earth, Remember, not sin. Sin's already paid for. That's a, there's no condemnation. There's no guilt. We're talking rewards. When Jesus is going to reward us, he says, I will simply not show you any mercy as well. If we don't show mercy on earth and compassion toward others who maybe are, are insignificant or in our eyes or the world's eyes they are, if we don't show mercy to all, God will not show mercy to us. He will simply say, This is it. This is what you get for rewards. 
No mercy. But if, as we living on earth, we are loving our neighbor as ourselves and showing mercy and compassion upon those who cannot even respond to us in like manner, and we get to the reward seat, and then Jesus says, wow, I mean, you strayed and you, you uh, weren't as faithful as you could have been during these times or whatever, but you showed mercy. That is the heart of God is showing mercy. You showed mercy and you, had, you loved your neighbor as yourself. You stooped down and helped. I will be merciful to you. Listen, when I stand before Jesus for rewards, I want him to be merciful. I need his mercy. I don't want to go just based on my, my deeds of, that I've done in my body, whether good or worthless. I want his mercy to cover a lot of stuff that I've done or not done in my Christian walk. Don't you? I, I don't want him just to be so cut and dried and say, hmm, you didn't show mercy to anybody on earth. I'm not going to show mercy to you right now. I think here, here's why I think he's saying this. Look, look with me at James 2.12. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. He's talking to believers. We need to speak and do the Christian life as if in the fu- because in the future we will be judged by the word of God. The word of God is our standard. Then he says in verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. There's going to be a judgment and God will not be merciful in that judgment, that rewarding of believers. And I don't think this is for unsaved. I don't think he's talking about the judgment of hell for the unsaved. Because is there any mercy for the unsaved going to hell? There's never mercy for them. They're out of the bounds of mercy and grace. They've already made their decision. They get full judgment in the lake of fire. So there's no mercy. There's not an option for mercy for them. But for us who are being judged, we're speaking and doing and being judged by the law of liberty. When God judges us, we want his mercy. And if you have not shown mercy to others, if you have not been like the good Samaritan, showing compassion and meeting needs of others, then when you get to the reward seat, he's not going to show mercy to you. It'll be very cut and dried. But if you love your neighbor as yourself, wow, does that change the spectrum I think of things in the reward seat? So he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. A a life of demonstrating mercy and and really true Christ-likeness triumphs. It rejoices. It it overcomes judgment. I don't know how that's all going to work. God does. But it is good encouragement that we love and treat one another like, like brothers and sisters. And then we also, we don't show preference to the world either. We don't exalt what the world exalts. We don't prefer certain people in the world over others because of their sinful lives. They all need the gospel. The world needs the gospel. We are the gospel messengers. So we're not showing partiality in the world. We're giving the gospel to all. I mean, those in the wickedest, the most wickedest of sins, they still need the gospel. When it comes to the church, there's no preferential treatment. We're receiving and loving everyone. Not one person goes unscathed from our fellowship and our time and our energy and our resource. Does that make sense? So next Sunday morning, just to prep you with this real quick. So next Sunday morning, the, the next part of the text, James says, what if somebody comes to you and wants food and clothing, and you say, depart from me, be, be warmed and filled, you know, have a good spiritual life, but I'm not going to meet any of your physical needs. I mean, you just there and showed no mercy. What's this about? So he's going to get us into that. That's the next part. Do you see how this all fits together? I don't know. It's a very t- difficult passage, m- many words to think about. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this command. The command is not to show partiality or favoritism. 
It is not to um, elevate and exalt somebody based on their appearance or some external circumstance um, and then disdain others, but to realize that you have 